Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we can open up our Bibles to James. James chapter 1. Commence a new study in this little book. Now, if we were, um, if we were a Christian publisher today and somebody brought this manuscript to us, it'd be absolute gold. You know, James, it's, it's short, it's punchy, it's, uh, it's very visual, there's some very catchy things in there. You know, you could give it a title like, Getting Your Faith to Work Harder, or, uh, you know, Faith Works Hard, or My Favourite, Grow Up and Be Perfect, by James the Less, <laughs> Becoming a Perfect Man, or so on. And it's a wonderful book because really what it is, is the heart of a pastor. James is an extraordinary character. Uh, In fact, he is um, so extraordinary, very little is written about him. He has managed to um, fly under the radar of many of the church historians that give give us lots of background about some of the other apostles. Um, But James James is is quite unique in his, uh, both in the canon of scripture and also is as him as a person. He is a bit of an enigma, which is um, rather strange given the fact that he is indeed the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one in Scripture that would have spent the amount of time with and in the presence of the Lord throughout his life. In fact, there is probably no one else that spent more time with the Lord Jesus that is uh, recorded for us in scripture, perhaps with the exception of Mary and Joseph, obviously. Now, the key with this little letter is to read it like you would read the Proverbs, the wisdom books, like Job, for example. It is full of imperatives paired with visual examples of what he is trying to convey in the imperative, that is, in the statement. You know, the imperative children are those, that, those things that park between the lines, please. That's an imperative, please park between the lines. Okay, so when James says something that is uh, an exhortation like that, the average uh, throughout the letter, there is one imperative for every three verses of this letter, which is extraordinary in itself. And that's why it comes across so punchy and so direct. And indeed, we have to ask three questions today when we kick off a letter. We firstly ask, well, who is James? Who is the writer of this letter that we're receiving? Who is the audience? Who are the recipients of this letter? And then what is it that he's trying to say? So we're going to just start with looking at those first two questions and then get into the first three verses. So James, or Jacob, as he would have been called, A servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says here. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's writing to the 12 tribes, which are scattered abroad. Greetings. Now, I've already touched on this, that he was indeed the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to spend this morning explaining to you why that is the case, but we do have, I will touch on some scripture references um, there is, in fact, five Jameses mentioned in the Scriptures. Um, the other one, the other major character, James the Apostle, was indeed executed by Herod in AD 44. And so we know that it was not him in writing this letter. 
And we do know that that James, the half-brother, in fact, did not believe that his big brother could be the Messiah. And that is mentioned in John chapter 7, verse 5. That indeed, it's, it's amazing that he grew up in the same house as our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, even within the confines of young adulthood, still did not believe that he could be the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. And, you know, this letter is, is so full of uh, teaching because I think in retrospect, James would have taken stock of his life and taken stock of what the Lord Jesus had shown him and realised the many, many uh, teaching lessons that he had been given by the Lord Jesus, particularly in Matthew 5 and 7, 5 to, and uh, chapters 5 and chapter 7. Um, and then it, those themes, those lessons are conveyed vividly um, in this letter. Uh, Jude, in fact, in verse 1, gives us another clue of who the author of this letter is because he actually says in writing that he introduces himself as Jude, a servant or slave, and we'll come back to that word, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And brother of James. So there is a, a clear uh, delineation here of who he is. And in fact, we now have another scripture that mentions that, and we know that Jude was indeed another brother, another half brother of our Lord. Now, sometime following the resurrection, sometime probably between uh, when he was crucified and the resurrection, and, and sorry, and his ascension, we know that James did become a believer. Because in 1 Corinthians, we have another clue in chapter 15. When he's talking about the resurrection of the dead, when Paul is expanding this, he says that he, is, that they was, he was seen of James, then the apostles. Why was he seen of James? Why did Paul feel the need to actually mention the man by name? Was because James was in fact one of the most, uh, most well-known leaders of the early church from a very, very early point in time. In fact, I would go as far as to say that he was the first pastor of an established church gathering there in Jerusalem. And in fact, in church tradition, in, from, from all of the different uh, traditions, he is actually known as the Bishop of Jerusalem, the first bishop. In Acts 12, 17, following Peter's miraculous escape from prison, those who first learned the news at the house of John Mark's mother should tell these things to James and to the brothers. So we have these little clues that are just dotted throughout Scripture. We're not left to wonder who this writer is, who this James is. And indeed, it was so important that the first people that should know about an important event like Peter's miraculous escape would have been the leaders of the church. These people need to know what's just happened. And so Paul makes the point there as... as uh, as indeed in Acts chapter 12. Also in Acts, uh, Luke, uh, sorry, Luke writing in about the first council of Jerusalem, James was indeed nominated as the spokesman for the Jerusalem church. He was the leader of the church. In fact, he's not only the leader of the Jerusalem church, but he is given the, the role as moderator of the entire council. So we have here in Acts chapter 15 uh, and the, the, the striking uh, similarities with the contents of this letter of James and indeed the speech 
that he gives in Acts chapter 15. Again, I won't go into the details. We'll just give the the high-level view. Read it for yourself, but over a cup of tea. It's actually amazing to see the the similarities between what he is saying in Acts chapter 15 um, when when he is delivering that sermon. But you know what's amazing is in these opening this opening verse this opening salutation is the fact that we don't find James as a name dropper in fact quite the opposite you would you would expect somebody that was wanting to give some gravitas to the letter that he was writing to align himself as close as possible to the Lord Jesus Christ to in fact remind them that don't you know I am the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ you see But no, he doesn't do that. He actually calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that word servant is the same word that Peter uses in his letter, the same word that Paul uses in many of his letters, slave. I am the lowest slave that you could imagine. I am the galley slave to God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the the designation That he gives himself. He is not James the bishop. He is not James the brother. He is not James the boss. He is James the slave. That is the heart of James. Right here in the opening verse. He is a servant to his Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. The, The designation and the full title he gives the Lord Jesus Christ here is so important. He's saying that he is Lord, that he is Messiah, that he is King. He is the one that we've been looking for. And notice who he's been writing to, which we'll get to, that he's writing to his fellow Jewish believers, the 12 tribes. And it's amazing. It's, it's very special and unique, this letter, because Jesus would have taught his younger brothers and sisters. It would have just been part of his daily activity and daily duty and he would have felt the responsibility that as he learned the scriptures in the old testament as he learned of his heavenly father as he learned of the holy spirit he would have brought to bear all that he was learning upon his younger siblings there in that little familiar household there in bethlehem and nazareth and it would have been an amazing thing to just see that that taking place as he would have led James, taught James in the confines, in the context of the household. So let us, let us just turn briefly then to the recipients. Who is James writing to? Indeed, he, said, he gives us scant information other than to say that they're the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. The idea here that James is writing not necessarily to one particular geographical location, but he has written a general letter that, was, that has been crafted to be sent to multiple audiences there in the ancient world. Multiple geographical locations able to be picked up and read that wherever these early Christians found themselves, these early Jewish believers. Indeed, Peter addresses... The same diaspora is the word, is the Greek word that is used here, the dispersion. Those who had fled the persecution in their various localities, those who were now scattered all over the ancient world, 
due to the persecution that had followed them becoming believers. We know that in chapter 2 and verse 2 that these uh, God-fearing types, these God-fearing Jews that now took Christ as as their Messiah, they still met in synagogues. They still met in places of worship in their various localities. And they were from different socioeconomic backgrounds, but it was entirely possible that some of them had been greatly deprived of their personal wealth, of their family connections, even cut off from their inheritance. And we get all of these clues from what James says in his letter. The point is that the recipients of James's letter here, regardless of where they were, they all had one thing in common, and that they were under a great load, a great load, a great weight that was upon them. They were going through trials. They were going through something that was extraordinary and something that many of them felt ill-prepared to cope with. And that is really one of the, the key themes of the letter that he is wanting to, to build them up, truly as the, as the heart of every pastor, Is not that the case, that every pastor wants to see their flock built up in the faith, able to stand mature in the faith? And that's what we see coming out. And this is why he's writing. And the clue to the whole letter, in fact, the fulcrum that the whole letter pivots on and comes back to, is actually in verse 4, where it says, But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, Wanting nothing. That is the the key to the whole letter of James. You know, and it is indeed his deepest heart, his deepest desire is to see these believers growing up perfect, entire, wanting nothing. This is James's heart. He wants to see believers whose faith is alive and well and going strong in the Lord. He wants to see believers being able to stand and having done all, as Paul writes, to stand, to stand. Reminding them in spite of their loss, in spite of their sufferings, in spite of their trials, whatever they're going through, that their saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, their God and father of the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for whatever their need is. And this is the great theme that he he takes up here. As well as having an express concern for the church and for the believers, as well as having this, indeed, this burden upon his heart that they would be grown up and, and perfect in their faith. And indeed, he is not teaching here sinless perfection. No, not by any means. He is, he is teaching a completeness, but he is teaching a completeness in Christ. He is teaching that they want, they, he wants them to be grown up in Christ and, able, and not being tossed around, some of the language that he uses. But one thing that he does take a deep exception to is faith that doesn't issue in good works. And he actually singles this out several times in the letter. He, any, anywhere where he has... If there is a notion of somebody who has some sort of hollow piety, these things are an absolute anathema to James. And this was so important in the early church. He did not want to see any hypocrisy in the church. 
This was his main concern. This was the main thing that he was trying to remove. He did not want to see the, these, the thoughts where, well, I've got faith. And he says, well, you show me your works and then I'll see your faith. Show me your life that you're living and then I'll see your faith. And he picks this theme up as well several times. He's concerned with the holy life. He is, he is concerned with those that have a concern for the needy. He is concerned with us having disciplined tongues. And is for James, if you do not ex- ex- express these things in your character and in your life and in your Christian witness and faith, then to him you have no faith at all. And he is very direct in this. He is very direct. So on, on these key themes, he writes with a passion, he writes with an energy, he writes with a hope. And I hope that as we move through this letter that we will somehow convey this to us all and to our hearts and that we might in some small way take this on board, to, that we might take this into our characters. So let's, let's look at these first few verses briefly this morning. Verse 2 to 4 says this, My brethren, count it all joy... When you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Wanting nothing. You know, imagine the the domestic setting here. And the, the, the letter comes through the door. Somebody's delivered it to the household. They get the letter. And, you know, the, you could just imagine it there. The, the, the lady of the house brings the letter over, and as was custom, gives it to the husband to read. Whoa, who's, who's this letter from? Oh, it's from James. Oh, really? What's he said? What's James said? Well, let me read it. Okay, I'll read it. And after the salutation, the husband there of the household reads these words. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. And the lady of the house Takes it out of his hand. Give me that. Let me read it. Doesn't he know? Why is he writing this? Doesn't he know what I'm going through? Doesn't he know how hard it is? Doesn't he know that we've suffered great loss? Doesn't he know that we've suffered persecution? How on earth can we count it all joy? What on earth is he talking about? You can just see that the confusion, can't you? This opening, this opening verse. What on earth does he mean? How on earth can we count it all joy going through what we are going through? Having lost homes and estates and family, whatever the case may be, some would have definitely lost loved ones to persecution. They would have lost loved ones. And it's amazing. It's amazing. He, he goes straight to the solution. He goes straight to the solution. You know, these were exiles that were facing severe hardships, severe hardships, things we know nothing about, things we are absolutely clueless about in the comfortable West that we live in now. And yes, we know that the tide is changing. We know that the cultural hostility is rising. But by and large, those of us who live in the West still aren't having our houses burned down, still aren't having our loved ones kidnapped in the cover of night, still aren't having possessions taken from us or being thrown into prison. We know nothing of this kind of persecution. But this is the, this is the audience that James 
is writing to. And he knows that the Christian life is, is tough enough. And, and this first group of Christians, they were doing it especially tough. Especially tough. No, no one had been here before. This was, this was new. This was new to the world. It's amazing. You know, cut off from social networks and support and facing the, the ravages. Imagine having to just change countries and localities and, you know, this, this group of believers. You know, the hymn we sing, Have we trials and temptations? Is there sorrow anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Oh, how easy we sing those words, brothers and sisters. How easy we sing them. How easy we sing them, and yet do we really know what we're singing? But he's straight to the point, James, and he looks, look at this. Being joyful in trial. That's really the topic. That's the key here. That's the key. Being joyful. And he doesn't say just be joyful when you fall into many temptations. No, he says, he adds that little word. It's a bit uncomfortable. He says, count it all joy. Count it all joy. This is the, this is the pinnacle of joy. Okay? This is what he's saying. This is, this is pure joy. In fact, the Greek, kosankuran, it says that, that, that there is no higher joy. This is it. You've arrived. If you are suffering and going through many trials and temptations for the sake of Christ... Count it all joy when this happens. How? How is this possible? It is no different to what the Lord Jesus Christ actually teaches, by the way, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, when he says, rejoice and be glad. It's that same sort of fullness of joy. Okay? And you know, there's God's people, when we endure this hardship... One thing tends to ha- always happen. God uses this as a mechanism of our growth every single time. It is the way in which he makes us grow. It is the, it is the lesson from John chapter 15 of the vine dresser coming in and pruning. And the, the, the process of pruning is not enjoyable. In fact, it's painful. And in fact, it might reduce us, reduce us once a so-called, you know, blooming green-looking vine to a rather horrible-looking little brown stalk in order that the new growth might come through. And this is the principle of the Christian life. And we, as believers, need to embrace it. And we need to understand it. Because this is the primary, if not the only way, that we grow. You know those little... Stickers that sometimes when you buy an electronic item, usually it's behind the, the battery thing, like a remote control. I see it on the kids' toys quite a bit. And there'll be a little sticker somewhere, and it just says, tested by... And then there's a... Usually it's a Chinese character, isn't it? I mean, let's not... Everything's made in China these days. But there's a little, little sticker that says, tested by... It might say, tested by A, B. It's just got an initial... But there's a sticker, there's a little symbol there that says, whatever that item is, whatever that toy is, somebody has taken the toy and put batteries into it and made sure it works before it goes into the box. 
And so there is, this, there is this little seal that says, this thing has been tested. It works. And we know it works because we tested it before we sent it to you. Okay? It's a bit like that for the Christian. Because what the trials do in testing our faith, they actually make sure that we are the genuine article. They, it actually makes sure that we are genuinely God's. Because without that testing, we wouldn't know if we worked. We wouldn't know if we were indeed a child of God. A brother quoted it in, the, in his prayer this morning, when we were giving thanks for the emblems, that wonderful verse written by the Lord Jesus, for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. Brothers and sisters, this is the core principle of the Christian faith. This is how we live out our life, especially if it comes to the, in the light of suffering and temptations and trials. It is for the joy that is set before us. Why would we think that if our master went through that, why would we think that it would be any different for us? Indeed, it will be the same. He has promised it so. He has promised it so. I love the, the language in Acts chapter 5 when, you remember when Paul and Silas, they're, they're beaten, right, by the, the crowd, take clubs to them and, and chase them out of town. And, um, but it just says this funny little word, uh, or words, it says in, in verse 41, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonour for the name of Christ, rejoicing greatly. It's the same idea here. They've just been flogged within an inch of their life. They escape barely with their life. And yet, even in the infancy of their faith, because the time wasn't very long between when the Lord ascended to when this event occurred, but in spite of that, they, they understood this principle very well. In fact, the early church came to realise this principle almost immediately because they were witnesses to the sufferings of Christ and they understood it, what it meant to be a follower very, very quickly. You know, you read some of the harrowing accounts in Fox's Book of Martyrs of what those early Christians went through. And indeed, James himself was martyred. We have a, a, um, a quite a, an accurate, I believe, uh, account of his martyrdom written by Josephus, but then supported by Eusebius and Clementine of Alexandria and some of these other origin as well, these early church leaders that all note that James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Bishop of Jerusalem, was actually taken. He was asked by the Jewish authorities to come and settle down the Christians and to tell them to stop believing in the Messiah publicly. And that's important, publicly. Okay, They, they were okay. They didn't want to rock the boat too much because they'd already attracted Rome's attention. And Rome's tolerance of this sort of you know, midnight Sanhedrin trials and people 
being executed because of some God that the Romans had no interest in, they were losing their patience very rapidly. And so you have this, con- this context where the city is like now buzzing. This is at about 63 AD. Okay? And, the, and so the, the Christian faith has really grown. And the Jewish leaders say, hey, we've got we to sort of calm this down. James, James, you're the, you're the figurehead. Come and, tell you, come and tell your lot to just calm down and to stop telling everybody that Jesus is the Messiah, all right? Oh, so James, in, in true preaching preacher fashion, you know what they do? They take him up onto the wall of the temple, onto one of the lower walls, where all the crowd had gathered around. And do you th- what do you think James did? Do you reckon James calmed them down? And said, stop believing in Yeshua, the Messiah. No, no, no. He took the opportunity and he preached Yeshua, the Messiah, to the crowd. And you know what they all did? They all erupted in hosannas. It was like triumphant entry, Mark 2. Everybody's just celebrating the Messiah on the foothills of the temple. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were the the Sadducees were actually, it was their turn to have a, a high priest at this time, gave the man a good shove from behind to shut him up. And he fell from the temple wall. But it gets worse. Because the fall didn't immediately kill him. And James gets back up on his knees after the Jews begin to stone him. Because they realised that he wasn't dead. And he prays for his attackers. He prays for the same prayer that his dear brother prayed for his attackers on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then one of the soldiers of the temple comes forth with a fuller's club, something used clean laundry sheets, a big heavy wooden implement and belts James across the head and he dies. That is what Christian suffering looks like. When the man was in full flight preaching the name of Christ and they needed to shut him up quickly and that's what happened. But we move on The other clue here that we have in verse 2 is the little word count. In fact, count it all joy. It means not just to sort of add it up like a sum, to, you know, count your blessings, name them one by one. No, it's not that sort of counting. It's actually the the idea here is that they're they're looking at it from, uh, from all parts of a whole. That's really what the word is saying. It's like... It's like, well, look at the whole. See what makes up the whole. And here, what, we, what, we're trying, what, the, what James is trying to convey is look at the big purposes of God. Look at, count it all up. See for yourself what he's doing in this day. Count it all joy. Count the eternal purposes of God. You know, go back, brothers and sisters, go back to when you first believed the gospel, when you first believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you, when you, that very moment when 
You said, yes, Lord, I'm, I'm done with my sin. I, I need your forgiveness. I need your mercy. Okay, and at those, those early days of your faith, you know, you probably thought that you needed a little bit of a renovation. You needed some things to change. Look at your life like, like a living house. Okay, there's a, the Lord comes into the house. And he, what does he do firstly? He firstly, he, just, he, he does the, the important things first. He fixes the leaks. He gets rid of all the rubbish. Out it goes. Okay? Fixes the plumbing. Gets all that working. Okay? But then after a while, no, no, God's not happy with that. You start seeing things like extensions happening. Turrets going up. Armories being built. The, the grand ballroom's being extended. All of a sudden, the little cottage no longer looks like a cottage. This little living house that you were is being expanded. It's being enlarged. It's being beautified. And why is it being beautified? And this, this process hurts. But it's important because what God is actually doing through trials is he is, he is making you as a living house... As the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, he is actually making that place, in fact, fit for his son to dwell in. Fit and beautiful for his son, for his Holy Spirit to come and abide. That's what he's doing. And the main reason why, indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ is there to abide with us is because he knows that we need him there in the trial. He knows that he needs to be there in the furnace, in the fire, whatever it is that we're passing through. He is there with us. He is there. Just reading a couple of verses and then we'll close. Romans chapter 5 says this, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the suffering produces endurance and that endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Poured out into our hearts. Oh, what a blessing it is to be a Christian, brothers and sisters. What a, what a joy it is, you know. And again, in in Romans and and chapter 8, verse 17, he says this, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, and if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And he says this, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In us. That's amazing. That's amazing. This is what God's doing in the life of every believer. He's preparing a place for him. You know, the idea here, just in closing, that he leaves us with, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be entire wanting nothing, the idea here is the, the picture that James gives us 
and he gives us lots of pictures. But this is like somebody, the, the steadfastness here, it's like somebody standing under a load. You know in the Olympics when the weightlifters come out and they, they lift these enormous weights and, I mean, the weights are incredible because, like, even the steel bar, you see them bending at the end. And they do... One of the weightlifting um, sections that they... or um, styles that they do is called the clean and jerk, where they have to actually pull the weight up, hold it here, and then lift it right above their heads. And you see the, the strain of these weightlifters and the enormous muscles. And, you know, the... the they're holding it there and they're, you know, they've, got a, they've got a count, I think it's to three or something, and then they can drop it. But that's the idea here, the, the steadfastness, the endurance, to be, that you'll be able to stand under the weight of whatever the trial is. You'll be able to stand. That's the picture that he's given us. You know, in trials, you know, this... this is wonderful for us because, yes, it, it tells us that the Lord Jesus is with us. Yes, he will be there with the trial. But, you know, every single time we go through some suffering or a trial, it actually does something for us as well. It brings an assurance, having gone through the trial, that we've been through it. And every trial brings more and more assurance and more and more strength. And that is the other reason that God gives us these things, so that we will know that we are his. That none shall snatch us from his hands. Brothers and sisters, what a blessing, what a thing it is to be a Christian. What a a blessing, what a privilege it is to be. To have that Holy Spirit there within us. To know that no matter what life throws at us, no matter what the enemy throws at us, no matter what the culture throws at us, I have Christ. What want I more? And that's the heart of Pastor James. That's the heart that he is wanting these dear brothers and sisters. So friends, I'll just say in closing, courage up. Courage up. If you're going through, I know Dada mentioned it, that there is even now some in our gathering, that are going through particular challenges, courage up. Courage up. The Lord is with you. What does Paul say in Ephesians 6? And having done all to stand, he will carry you through and you will be able to stand because he is with you. And the next time we'll be asking for wisdom, and we'll see how these two wonderful themes of, of joy in trials and wisdom which comes from above is, is just beautifully linked. So until then, let's just commit our way to the Lord. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you just how instructive it is, even having been penned thousands of years ago. Lord, it is still the living and abiding word of God. So, Father, in this week ahead, we just pray, Lord, that we would see you more clearly, that we would follow you more nearly, and that we would love you more dearly. Lord, this is our simple prayer. Be with every single one of us gathered here and also those that cannot 
make it out today. We thank you, Lord, for our time together. We thank you, Lord, for our Lord Jesus Christ and his blessed Holy Spirit. And now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless in the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Saviour, both glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Amen and amen.